Kendra Kruger. And I'm Joel Parker. This is Hell on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 16th, 2016. Coming up, making waves. Gravitational waves, that is. We talk with MIT physicist Dr. Matt Evans about the recent detection of these elusive distortions of space-time, what they are, and what it all means. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Genetically modified organisms have raised ire across the country, but now add the U.S. Intelligence Agency to the list. The U.S. Director of National Intelligence has called genome editing techniques like CRISPR weapons of mass destruction. In the 2016 annual report from the agency, Director James Clapper rated the biotechnology a threat because of its broad distribution, low cost, and accelerated pace of discovery. The inclusion of gene editing surprised many experts, given that the other threats included North Korea's nuclear test last month, Russian cruise missiles violating the Nuclear Forces Treaty, and chemical weapons in Syria. According to an analysis from MIT, the concern is that biotechnology is dual use, meaning that some scientific development can be harnessed as weapons. Clapper didn't lay out any specific scenarios, but some scientists have speculated about CRISPR's application to develop killer mosquitoes, plagues that wipe out crops, or even a virus that attacks human DNA. The threat assessment report was released last week to the Senate Armed Services Committee. Using a custom-designed 3D printer, scientists at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center have shown that it is feasible to print living tissue structures to replace injured or diseased tissue in patients. The scientists say they printed ear, bone, and muscle structures. The system deposits biodegradable plastic-like materials to form the tissue shape and water-based gels that contain the cells. In addition, a strong, temporary outer structure is formed. When implanted in animals, the structure matured to functional tissue and developed a system of blood vessels. Most importantly, these early results indicate that the structures have the right size, strength, and function for use in humans. The researchers say that with further development, this technology could potentially be used to print living tissue and organ structures for surgical implantation. The results of their study, along with photos and videos of a 3D printer creating an ear and a jawbone, were published yesterday in the journal Nature Biotechnology. Once again, science prevails in debunking a harmful and negative social stereotype. A recent study published in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence has disproved the long-enduring myth that Native Americans have a higher propensity to use alcohol as compared to Caucasian or white Americans. The study, which surveyed 4,000 individuals who identify as Native American and 170,000 white Americans, showed that both groups engage in light, moderate, and excessive drinking at the same rates. However, 60% of the Native American population surveyed actually abstains from alcohol consumption as compared with 43% among Caucasians. Again, 
Native Americans in the study were more likely to abstain from alcohol use than their white counterparts. Stereotypes such as these can lead to harmful consequences, such as employers not willing to hire and inaccurate medical care and treatment. The researchers stated that they hoped these results also provoke the media to more accurately present Native Americans. Research like this is an example of how science plays a role in creating a more equitable and culturally aware society. On the calendar, it's third Thursdays at Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and there are still a limited number of tickets available at the door for their science lounge exhibit entitled chocolate. In conjunction with their special exhibit, the Science Lounge is an adult-focused event with cocktails and conversation, and this week will be centered around their special chocolate exhibit. Show up at 6 p.m. this Thursday to snag a ticket. Also, in partnership with the museum, the Sci Film Center will be screening The Last Man on the Moon on Saturday, February 27th. The film is a documentary about Eugene Cernan, the last man to set foot on the surface of the moon. The Saturday screening will also include a Q&A session with former astronaut Bruce Candless, who flew on two space shuttle missions, including one that launched the Hubble Space Telescope and another which had the first untethered human spacewalk. Find more info on denverfilm.org. You are listening to the wavy sounds of How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. The big news in physics this week was the announcement last Thursday of the first detection of gravitational waves. The detection was made by the LIGO project, which stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Reports have said that this is a confirmation of general relativity and a new way to view the universe. Well, to help us understand that and why this is such a significant achievement, we have on the phone Dr. Matthew Evans, an associate professor of physics at MIT. Dr. Evans is a member of the LIGO Scientific Collaboration and the chair of the Advanced Interferometer Configurations Working Group. His research focus is on gravitational wave detector instrumentation and the fundamental sensitivity of gravitational wave detectors. Welcome to How on Earth, Matt. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me on the show. Before we get into the nitty-gritty details of general relativity, could you just explain what is LIGO? LIGO is a pair of uh, very large interferometers, and by very large I mean they're about two and a half miles or four kilometers on a side. And the interferometers are of the Michelson type that some people might be familiar with from their undergraduate physics classes. But it's the kind of instrument used to make very sensitive measurements of positions. You say there are two of them. Where are they located? One of them is in Hanford, Washington, and the other is in Livingston, Louisiana. Essentially, we needed some large, flat spaces in which to build these interferometers. 
Okay, so that's a little bit more, not too much, than the distance that you and I are right now between Boulder and Boston, I guess. So you had to have some distance there. Why did you need two detectors in that separation? So we wanted two detectors, which were separated by a large distance, so that we could be sure that if we saw the same signal in both detectors, that it didn't come from some local source, like a truck driving by one of the observatories observatories, or uh, wind blowing or something local. And if you had two detectors which were nearby each other, or if you had only one detector, then you would have a hard time being absolutely sure that what you detected was, in fact, a gravitational wave coming from space, rather than someone dropping a hard, uh, large thing on the floor. So we needed two observatories widely separated, in this case, on opposite sides of the country, in order to be really sure. We use coincidence, uh, is what we call it, as a way of improving our ability to detect gravitational waves. I'm going to want to ask a little more later about why dropping a hammer or the wind blowing could distract you from uh, the real data. But first, can you describe to us what was detected? We hear gravitational waves were detected, but what does that mean? So we often listen to the output of our detectors in the control room where we operate the detectors, and they have this sort of nice uh, humming background noise. If you had been listening carefully in the control room on September 14th, you would have heard a little uh, thump go by. And maybe it wasn't anything noteworthy if you're just there listening to the speaker, but it was the same thump which happened in Hanford as in Livingston, uh, Louisiana. And the, the result of that is that this thump was our first sound, if you will, coming from outer space and hitting the Earth and being read out by these two detectors. So what we measured was a gravitational wave arriving at the Earth, and it actually came from a pair of very large black holes, so not supermassive like in the middles of galaxies, but about 30 times the mass of our sun, which were going around each other about 100 times a second before they ran into each other and produced this burst of gravitational waves which then propagated across the universe for about a billion years before passing through the Earth and making this uh, thumping sound. The way you describe it, I, I have to admit, I imagine Jodie Foster in contact, sitting on her car with headphones, detecting that first uh, sound from extraterrestrials far away. I assume it wasn't just you had a, enough people listening on their headphones to uh, hear the signal come in. Of course not. So we actually, the collaboration, the LIGO scientific collaboration, as it's called, is about a thousand people strong. And the vast majority of those people are data analysts. And they have been working and preparing for several years uh, for LIGO data to come in and to do a very detailed statistical analysis of this data. It just happens that the first event, the one that we have here, um, is, is hugely significant. And and it's so significant, in fact, that you really could just hear it uh, on the speakers if you were listening, which is not what we had expected for the, the first thing that we detected. Um, but, of course, the, the important feature which distinguishes this from uh, Jody Foster with headphones is that you would have to have two Jody Fosters, one of each observatory, <laughs> on the phone with each other. Say, hey, did you hear that? Uh, and then maybe you could have done it with <laughs> just some headphones. But no, uh, realistically speaking, there's there's a huge uh, data analysis effort behind LIGO uh, with which we quantify the significance of the results. How do you know this is what you say it is? I mean, this goes to the question of how do you know it wasn't some noise in the system? Is it just 
coincidence that was the key factor here? In some sense, yes, but if we had only one detector, we would be much less sure. So coincidence is something which helps us a lot. With this event, it turns out that the waveform that we detect matches what we would expect from general relativity so well that we, can, we could say, even though we wouldn't want to, that we had detected something with only one detector. This event is, is quite characteristic and, and quite loud. And we know that it's not a, a hammer or whatnot like that in this case because it has this characteristic sort of chirping sound. If I, it sounds like just a thump if you listen to it at its normal speed, but if you speed it up a bit, it sounds like a chirp. It kind of goes up in frequency like a whoop sort of sound. And this kind of chirping sound is something that our detectors don't make on their own. So since this signal was well above the noise of the detector, which is something we've spent a long time characterizing, uh, we can be quite sure that it's not something of instrumental origin, which is our way of saying not someone dropping something or kicking a cord or whatever like that. So you have this waveform that you observed. How were these observed waves or this waveform translated into things like the mass before and the mass after the merger. And it, it seems like there were maybe a couple different phases of this waveform corresponding to different phases of the evolution of this binary black hole. Yeah, that's right. So the three phases are the in-spiral phase, where the system spends millions of years uh, slowly losing energy to gravitational waves. And at the end of that, the black holes have gotten close enough to each other that they start moving very quickly and losing energy very rapidly. And that brings them to what's called the merger phase, and this is the point where the two black holes essentially touch each other and then merge into one larger black hole, and in the process they put out a burst of gravitational wave radiation, uh, which is really that last phase is the part that we detect with uh, LIGO. And then there's a third phase, which is called the ring down, and that's just the new black hole settling down after this cataclysmic event into uh, just a perfect sphere again, as you would imagine black holes are. Or I guess since it's spinning, it would be an ellipsoid. But, but that's it settling down to the new, more massive black hole. So there are three phases, and we detect the end of the in-spiral phase along with the merger and some amount of the ring down phase. So you were able to disentangle those phases from a uh, what sounds like a rather short chirp? Yes, that's correct. It's one of the interesting things which distinguishes this kind of gravitational wave detection from other things in, say, astrophysics, that the physics of the system involved is actually... I want to say very clean. It's not simple in the sense that the mathematics are complicated and we need numerical solutions to general relativity to actually understand these waveforms. But the system is quite clean in that there's no microphysics happening here. There's nothing complicated like the insides of stars. So you can actually predict with great certainty the waveform that you would expect from a given uh, source system. So in this case, a pair of black holes with a particular spin, you can calculate directly the gravitational wave signal that you would expect from such a source. Is that why you say even if you just had one detector, this would have been a notable event as opposed to having a coincidence that you could compare against? Yes, it turns out that this this event is loud enough, that is, the signal-to-noise ratio is high enough, that it's noticeable even if you're looking at the data from a single detector. 
Um, like I said, we're a bit allergic to single detector events uh, because we don't want to be wrong. So having the same signal appear in two detectors, which are on opposite sides of the country, uh, gives us a lot more confidence. But we could have actually done much of the same science with a single detector, though we probably wouldn't have been so eager to believe it, which is another way of saying that our statistical confidence in the detection would have been much lower. For those of you who may be just tuned in, you are listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter, and we're getting much smarter here about gravitational waves because we are talking to Dr. Matthew Evans, a physicist from MIT and a member of the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO, project that recently detected gravitational waves. So, Matt, this was heralded as an important detection relative to general relativity, but haven't we had some tests of general relativity in the past, like, you know, starlight going by the sun. Why is this so significant? Why is this so important? So in terms of testing general relativity, this signal, this gravitational wave detection is different in that we're really getting information from from the black holes merging themselves. And what's different about that is that black holes come from what's called strong field gravity. That's the region of general relativity in which space-time is really an important concept because space and time have become completely mixed in a way which is difficult for us to conceptualize, uh, but which the equations of general relativity describe quite well. And this is our first test of that strong field regime where space and time have been completely mixed up around these black holes. And that's the regime that gravitational waves are produced in. So it's the first time we've been able to test general relativity in this completely mind-blowingly different sort of regime than what we're used to or what we experience in a daily way. Previous tests, like the starlight passing by the sun or the precession of the perihelion of Mercury, which are kind of the classic examples, both involved weak field gravity. So the sun is weak field even though we think of it as pretty strong. <laughs> yes, so the sun uh, for us is a weak field, and and that's because it's uh, compared to a black hole, the sun is like a big piece of cotton candy. It's large and fluffy uh, and relatively light. Uh, the black holes that we detected here are about 30 times the mass of the sun for the two that were coming in, and that means the result was about 60 times the mass of the sun. And it would all fit into a space a few hundred kilometers across. So they're extremely dense, and the gravity around them is as large as can be had. That's sort of what is what defines black holes. So this being the first test of the strong field of general relativity, I assume it passed the test? Amazingly enough, it did. Uh, it's still shocking to me that Einstein could have gotten this right just by contemplating how he could make uh, gravity work along with the idea of uh, the speed of light being a speed limit in nature. And putting these concepts together, he came up with this theory, which he was then not able to test in this extreme environment. And amazingly, his theory from 100 years ago passed the test with flying colors. You're talking about these objects, these, this binary black hole. Each one is about 30 times the mass of our cotton candy sun here. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of mass, and these are in the binary system. Can you kind of describe what that is like, uh, these objects orbiting around each other? Can we imagine, like, 
the Earth puttering around the sun or something like that? Uh, they go much faster as they move in towards each other, which is a bit hard to imagine for something which is so massive. But they're actually relatively small, again, a few hundred kilometers across. So you could imagine maybe two black balls zipping around each other. Uh, and near the end of their life, the part of the signal that we detected came from the end of the life of these things. They're going around each other about 75 times per second. So two very massive objects which are shockingly small and moving at a reasonable fraction of the speed of light. And the gravity waves were created how? The gravity waves are created just because actually any accelerating mass will produce a gravitational wave. Uh, but in order to get something which we have any hope of measuring, you need a very large mass, and you need to go very quickly. It should accelerate very quickly. So in general relativity, you could say gravitational waves are produced by anything which moves. If you pick up a stapler and throw it across the room, you've made some gravitational waves. I can't but detect they're them, though. very, very small. <laughs> yeah. So until you're uh, throwing around something with many times the mass of the sun, it's hard to produce a measurable gravitational wave. But even with those huge masses, 30 times the mass of the sun, each orbiting around each other 75 times a second, this measurement was very difficult. How small, how fine of a measurement are we talking here? So, yes, the measurement was very difficult. And I guess I should say that objects like this are not found uh, very often, and they don't merge very frequently. So this particular source was about 1.3 billion light years away, so quite far away. We could say long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away here. <laughs> um, and the precision of the measurement is... 10 to the minus 21 is the fractional change in the length. So over the length of the LIGO detector, which is about four kilometers or two and a half miles, uh, that's a change in length which is about 1,000th the diameter of a proton, a little bit bigger, but that's the right scale. So you should be looking at 10 to the minus 18 meters kind of change in, in length, where the length that you're measuring is four kilometers. So it's a very, very challenging measurement, a very small displacement. And it's amazing that you got a detection so soon when LIGO turned on. What do you see as just the future for gravitational wave astronomy now that it has been demonstrated? Yeah, we were also... Uh, very happy and feeling very fortunate that uh, these large black hole systems are out there and producing gravitational waves that we can detect. We, we as an astrophysical community, didn't really know, weren't really sure that such things were to be found. And now that we have discovered them, we actually expect that we will be receiving more similar signals over in the following years as we improve the LIGO detectors. This was as you say, we had just turned on these detectors, and it means that they're not yet operating at their best. We could potentially get another factor of two or three more sensitivity, and that would mean about 10 times higher event rate than what we have seen so far. So I hope that in the coming years we will have fives or tens of these kinds of detections happening. Wow. Well, we're definitely looking forward to hearing about more of these detections in the future, and we hope to have you maybe back on the show to talk about the complete collection of detections that you have in the future. Uh, that was Dr. Great. 
That was Dr. Matthew Evans, a physicist from MIT, talking about the detection of gravitational waves from merging black holes, a major accomplishment achieved by the LIGO project. For more about the LIGO project, go to www.ligo.caltech.edu. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Jill Parker, and this week's show is produced and engineered by myself, Kendra Kruger. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from AIR. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Do you have questions or comments? Well, you can call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Kendra Kruger.